Turn if you, in the, if, you, if you will this morning to Matthew chapter 9 as we return to this uh, first gospel. Matthew chapter 9, we'll look at verses 1 to 8 this morning. This text is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. It's about the paralyzed man whose friends brought him to see Jesus, but there was such a crowd they couldn't get in the door. So they took their paralyzed friend up on the roof, assumably a flat roof, as they had in those days, not a steep roof like we might know. And they tore open a giant hole in the roof and lowered their friend down in front of Jesus to be healed. Those details make this one of the most memorable stories in the Bible. The only problem is Matthew left out all that part about coming down through the roof. He doesn't even mention that. So obviously the Lord has something else to teach us here. Let me read. Matthew, uh, this account is also found in Mark and Luke, but Matthew's account is the briefest of them all. Let me read it. Matthew 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. That'd be Capernaum. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to men. There are several ways we might approach this text, but let me just point out to you two simple things that I think we ought to learn. The first is this. Though we are forgiven, we wait for healing. Though we are forgiven, we wait for healing. We may have assumed that lowering the paralytic through the roof was the unexpected part of the story, but when Jesus saw the man, he too did what no one expected. He did not touch the man or say some magic sacred words over him. He did not even pray for him or try to heal his paralysis. Instead, Jesus simply said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that raises an important question to consider What is the connection between sin and sickness? Which means the connection between forgiveness and healing. Well, after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, God pronounced a curse on mankind and on the earth. So ultimately, sin is the cause of all brokenness and defilement in the world. And for that curse to be removed, sin had to be dealt with. Which is why Jesus came into the world to save us from both the guilt and the consequences of sin. It is that saving work of Jesus which is being displayed in this account. William Lane explains, Healing is a gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are the tokens of death at work in a man's life. Sickness, disease, and death are the consequence of the sinful condition of all men. Consequently, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion of the province of sin. Jesus is the one who will defeat sin and remove the curse from the earth, bringing total renewal 
to his creation. So as we read of Jesus' ministry, it's easy to just equate sin and sickness. Forgiveness of sin and healing from sickness. In fact, that's exactly what the disciples themselves did. In John 9, they saw a man born blind and they asked Jesus, just kind of matter-of-factly, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? They just assumed that his sickness reflected his sin. He sinned, he's sick. That's easy. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Job's friends did the same thing. They saw Job suffering and confidently concluded, well, the problem is his sin. He's getting what he deserves. But in spite of that strong connection between forgiveness and healing, this paralytic was forgiven but not healed, not right away. When Jesus forgave the man, what happened to his paralysis? Nothing. He was still paralyzed. And this is not the only example of forgiven people continuing to suffer while they wait to be healed. Remember the Apostle Paul. He suffered terribly from what he called his thorn in the flesh. But though he was clearly forgiven of his sins, God refused to remove that trouble which some think is a partial blindness. Or Paul's traveling companion, Trophimus. He was a fellow minister of the gospel. I'm sure he was one who was with Paul as Paul healed people in Jesus' name. Nevertheless, when Trophimus got sick, they left him behind in the town of, the town of Miletus, unhealed, too sick to travel. Indeed, even this very morning around the world, many of God's dear saints Faithful Christian disciples live in, who live in the joy of God's forgiveness are sick and are in trouble and will die waiting for relief. For though we are forgiven, we must usually wait to be healed. So isn't it providential that Jesus worked in the way he did in this account? For this is almost always our Christian experience. God promises that we're instantly forgiven when we trust in Jesus, but we often wait for healing for the rest of our lives and die before we're ever healed. So what's going on here? What's going on? If you've been around here more than a week, you've heard me talk about the already and not yet character of God's kingdom. On the one hand, the kingdom has come. Christ the king has come. He has not only won the battle over sin and death on the cross, he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and taken his seat at the right hand of God to rule. The kingdom has come. At the same time, having already shared in his victory and his rule, we do not yet enjoy all the promised benefits of the new creation. We still battle with sin. We still live under the curse in a a fallen world. We, we, we still experience suffering and death. We wait for the fullness of God's grace to be revealed when he returns. All of which means we live by faith, not sight. We believe in a Savior we've never seen. We believe we are forgiven, though we still struggle with sin. We believe we are citizens of heaven, though this world is very much our home. We believe we have a new eternal life in Christ, even as death ravages our bodies. Everything we know of God, his grace 
and his glory is already, but not yet. Now, folks, this is an important distinction which we must understand in the age in which we live. Though God forgives our sins completely because of Jesus' work of redemption, we do not yet enjoy freedom from all the effects of the fall. Christians still get sick. Until the Lord comes, every one of us will die of something. So Jesus' two-staged restoration of this man, where he was forgiven but not yet healed, was the foretaste of this whole age in which we live, in which we are truly forgiven in Christ, but still suffer the ravages of sickness and disease. Failure to understand this brings disastrous results. If you let someone tell you, That because you are sick or suffer, you obviously are living in sin. You don't have enough faith. You need to get right with God. If you start to think that way, you will probably eventually lose your faith completely. Believing that if God does not heal us, he must not have forgiven us either. Believing that if he does not heal us, he must not care. He must not be trustworthy. He must not love us, after all. Or some have done, you may make a circus of the faith trying to make healings happen and wounding the souls of the faithful in the process. There's a certain profound connection between sin and sickness, between forgiveness and healing. But dear friends, they're not the same thing. Even the forgiven must wait for healing. Some years ago, when it first came out, I read the autobiography of, of uh, Johnny Erickson, that quadriplegic uh, uh, artist and writer, this godly woman who understands suffering better than anyone I know, recounted the pain that people brought into her life by telling her that because the Bible says by his stripes we are healed, healing is guaranteed right now for those who will believe, just like forgiveness is. So those who are not healed are guilty of a lack of faith. Folks, that's a cruel lie. If it were true, it would mean that every person who dies is lost, for they died without faith. For according to that view, if they had faith, God would have healed them. They wouldn't have died. Or it's certainly true that by Jesus' wounds we are healed We are healed, but we do not yet have it all. That's the first truth. The second truth, then, the more primary truth is this. Jesus proved his authority to forgive sins. Jesus proved his authority to forgive sins. Every kid who grew up in church knows this story about the paralyzed man whose friends lowered him down through the hole in the roof. But while the story is familiar, many of the people I've asked, and I've tried to ask uh, people here and there this week, uh, just tell me, what's the point of that story? And some came really close, and some missed it completely. But many assumed that the point of the story is to show Jesus' power over the man's paralysis and his ability to heal him. And it does show that, but that's not the point of the story. 
The point is that Jesus was proving his authority to forgive sin. There was quite a crowd of people gathered in that house, but of special interest to us was the, were the teachers of the law or the, rab, or the scribes, as they were called. <clears throat> Sometimes we villainize these scribes and teachers of the law, but they were smart men and they knew the Bible well. They were the preservers of the sacred text. There were the theologians and lawyers combined in a, in a world where there was no distinction between church and state. They were the same thing. They were experts in the Old Testament law and in the Jewish oral traditions. They were the authoritative interpreters of the scripture. They were the expert judges of disputes. So when Jesus pronounced to that paralytic man that his sins were forgiven, that was not about to pass them unnoticed. Their mental wheels began to turn. Their theological reasoning went into high gear. Who does this guy think he is? They wondered. No one has the authority to forgive sin but God. And that's exactly what the scriptures say. Isaiah 43, the Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and return to the Lord, and he will have compassion, and he will abundantly pardon. Micah 7 says, who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity? The scribes and teachers of the law knew exactly what the Bible said. No one has authority to forgive sins but the Lord God. Therefore, Jesus was claiming for himself the unique prerogative of God. If defiling God's name constitutes blasphemy, then this claim to possess God's authority to forgive must be the most heinous blasphemy. They only mumbled this to one another, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And now he was in a position to prove his authority to forgive sin. So Jesus said to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? That's a revealing question. But Jesus' point is very simple. It's much, much easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because that claim cannot be proved or disproved. As they sat and looked at the paralyzed man lying on the, on the stretcher, they had no way to know whether his sins are forgiven or not. Any quack or cult leader can claim to forgive your sins. Then Jesus set forth his claim in verse 24. He says to the the scribes and teachers of the law, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turned to the paralyzed man and he said, I tell you, Get up and take your mat and go home. And immediately the man did exactly what Jesus said. The paralyzed man got up and rolled up his mat and went home praising God. Do you understand what Jesus did here? He made a claim which people could observe to be true or false when he said, uh, get up and take your mat and go home. Neither the man could do that or he couldn't do that. That was verifiable. But he made that claim in such a way that it proved the claim that that people could not 
observe his claim to forgive sins. But Jesus didn't just beat around the bush. He didn't suggest possible interpretation of his words. He didn't just hint at something to make oblique uh, allusions to some possible claim. No, he came right out and proved his divine authority to forgive our sins. Now, such claims always would bring great division, and they did here. Either we believe in him or we can't stand him. And so on that day was the beginning of that great division. Though everyone had seen the same miracle and heard the same claims, the scribes and Pharisees began to set themselves against Jesus, for he did not fit their expectation of the Messiah, and the people who knew their desperate need rallied behind one who could forgive them and restore them. Folks, the things Jesus did and said were for our benefit too. Today he calls us to follow. Today he offers us forgiveness not just verified by his ability to make a paralytic walk, but now verified by his resurrection from the dead. Having paid for our sins on the cross, today Jesus has authority to forgive you. You feel the impact of that? Jesus will not let you claim to be an agnostic. He guarantees you can know. For he demonstrates in the world of the visible, in the realm of the verifiable, his power and authority which extends into the world of the invisible. By his power to heal, we understand the truth of his claim to forgive sins. Similarly, by his resurrection from the dead, complete with all the eyewitness accounts that the scripture gives us, his claim to have made atonement for our sin is verified. You see, that unbelief that we experience is is really not ignorance. It's not some noble reserve of judgment until all the facts are in. It's not the result of trying to understand things that are just unknowable. No, that's not true. That unbelief is actually rebellion. It is an unwillingness to know what God has made known. It's a refusal to submit to Christ even after he verifies his claim. So there are only two responses to this. There's a response of the paralytic in the crowds. He went home rejoicing in God's forgiveness and healing in the crowd stood in awe of God's majestic power and Christ's authority. And then there's a response of the scribes. In accusing Jesus of blasphemy, they committed blasphemy themselves. Since, they had proven him, since he had proven himself to have divine authority, they find themselves fighting against God. Accusing God of corruption. So did the scribes ever change? Nope. This is the very charge on which they brought Jesus to Pilate to have him crucified. He's a blasphemer. And what about you? Jesus' claims are clear. They've been verified. So you will accept him by faith and receive forgiveness Oh, you will conclude he's a blasphemer. May God grant us all the grace of forgiveness and of faith and of forgiveness and of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a story. What unexpected things, what mind-boggling things. We'd have been there. We don't know what we would have said, how we would have responded. 
But I pray that our response would be the faith of this man and the faith of people who believed what you said and what you did and not the arrogance and the rebellion of the scribes and teachers of the law. Thank you, Lord, that you have the power to forgive our sins. We rest our whole eternal welfare on that. That what we could never work off, what we could never get excused, what we could never buy a pardon for, you have made atonement for and forgive freely. So grant that we, with joy, might live in that freedom. In your name we ask, amen. You'll find your bulletins an affirmation of